0: Hello everybody, welcome to the LSE Gender Institute Public Lecture. Um, it's very nice to see you all here. Uh, my name is Sadie Waring and I'm going to be chairing this event tonight. Um, um, uh, uh, it's an enormous privilege to welcome Professor Richard Dyer um, to, this, to give this public lecture tonight. Um, but'm just before I introduce him, I 'm just going to run through how this event's going to work. Um, Professor Dahl will speak for about fifty minutes, leaving us plenty of time for questions and answers afterwards um, and, and a bit of discussion about about the lecture. Uh, can I ask you when we do do that to wait until the roving mic comes to you before you ask your question? Um, That's partly because this event, we very much hope, will be a podcast in the end. So we just need to wait for for those things. Okay, so without waiting uh, any longer, I would like to introduce you to Professor Richard Dyer. He's Professor of Film Studies at our much-loved, illustrious neighbour, King's College. Um, He is the holder of numerous uh, awards, including lifetime membership of SCMS... Uh, an a honorary doctorate from the University of Turku in Finland and he's held numerous visiting professorships he is very well known to many of you already um, but for those of you who, who are not that familiar with his work I'm going to say he is a multiple paradigm shifter um, and some of those paradigm shifting books would include uh, In the Space of a Song Nino Rota, music film of feeling there's recent books pastiche, heavenly bodies, film stars and society, now you see it historical studies in lesbian and gay film, the culture of queers stars, white and uh, the matter of images Um, as this list makes very clear it's true to say that the discipline of film and media studies um, looks and also I would say picking up on one of the um, sort of threads of his work feels uh, very different or the way it does because of his presence within it. Um, His work demonstrates why we have to take popular culture seriously, um, but that seriousness is always uh, very beautifully, elegantly uh, expressed. Um, He's made many areas of popular culture, including sexuality, music, stardom, race, newly and distinctly visible. Um, and has shown the interconnections between these elements in our experience and understanding of film and media, and he's frankly incomparable. Um, So, on behalf of the LSE Gender Institute, I would like to welcome him again, and tonight he's going to speak on the topic of European film serial killers, masculinity and whiteness.
1: Thank you very (laughs) much. Well, thank you so much uh, for that wonderful introduction. Um, And also thank you especially for inviting me again because I was supposed to do this a year ago and then I couldn't. And my experience usually is when that happens, then you don't get invited again. So I'm particularly um, delighted to have been invited again and delighted to be here. Okay, my topic, the title, Only White Men, The Serial Killer in European Cinema. And I'm actually going to start with not, in fact, a European film, but just a clip from uh, the film Copycat. This is the beginning of the film, and it does, in its way, sum up the conventional wisdom about uh, serial killing. Um, And I won't say any more than that, except to just notice, please, the scream that you hear on the soundtrack just at the beginning of the extract. But I'll say some more about what comes from it afterwards. Okay, why... Why should I speak when I can get Sigourney to speak? <laughs> okay, now, just let me go back to the PowerPoint. Okay, now, there are three things I want to take from that. One is that, uh, and each of them are, as it were, the conventional wisdom about serial killing. One is the idea that it's everywhere, that it's growing. In fact, a lot of, the, a lot of what, she, what Sigourney Weaver says, the script takes it from a book called The Growing Menace which is about serial killing and that that whole idea that there are more and more serial killing, it's a terrible thing, it's a symptom of our times and so on is one piece of conventional wisdom in that. The second conventional wisdom is that serial killers are uh, white and male Um, and that that is very widely uh, assumed to be the case. And the third which is slightly more subliminal but is that scream that you hear which could just be a scream of laughter but it's also a scream of teasing of men teasing women and there's a whole argument to be said that serial killing is simply as it were, what's inside this, that there's a kind of sadism in the teasing merely taken to a logical, logical conclusion and a lot of feminist work has made that argument I'm not going to particularly talk about that but I want more to focus on the idea of serial killing being a, a major phenomenon in our society and the idea of it being a phenomenon of white men And I want to start with three, or continue now, with three uh, slightly separate um, examples or ways of kind of making the point. First of all, then... Uh, to make the very simple point, actually, serial killing is statistically an incredibly insignificant crime. Um, if you work it, I mean, my maths is not very good, but the, uh, I mean, although she says 35 at any one time, actually, even if that was true, and it's almost certainly not, 35 serial killers, uh, male, let's say male serial killers in when that film was made, represents point Let me get it right. 0.000001% of the population. Of the male population. So it's a tiny, tiny uh, number. It's true that there are more serial killers now than there were 100 years ago, and there's more everything now. Uh, so it's not in itself particular. And often when people do these statistics, they don't think about that and they don't talk about the general population numbers. They simply say, oh my God, there's more and more of them, and it's frightening under every corner, and so on. So statistically, it's completely insignificant. On the other hand, culturally, it's absolutely everywhere. It's, it's one of the sort of biggest growth areas in popular culture of the past 20 years. There are plays, there are musicals, there are operas, there are dance pieces, there are ballets, there's rock music, pop music, uh, graphic novels, television series, and of course, because it's what interests me particularly, there are movies. And there are both... Um, ...rather highly regarded films, films that are regarded as great classics of the cinema, uh, which are uh, serial killer films. I'm just putting up a few of these titles here. So on the one hand, it's again a high status in the history of um, the cinema, particularly as seen by uh, film studies... And on the other hand, we'll just get to the end of that. And on the other hand, it's also uh, um, very much a major part of what one might call lowbrow or if you like trash cinema, exploitation cinema and so on. And again, just to put up perhaps some of the um, it, the canon of trash cinema is, is of these examples of serial killing. So it's, it's massively present and yet at the same time completely insignificant in terms of the, 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 the real world. Not that there aren't any such thing, but they're terribly unimportant in terms of it. And yet... Now, of course, there are lots of explanations for why it's popular in movies and so on, but also important is how frequently serial killers are seen as somehow symptomatic of our time, either symptomatic of our time or else symptomatic of human nature itself or male human nature itself. So this, this very unrepresentative, insignificant, statistically tiny thing is taken as being representative of some great theme about contemporary society or about human or about male nature. And this is a very recurrent theme, and I just put up one example. This was actually written in 1888 at the time of the Whitechapel murders. And it's, but it's just a very characteristic response to those murders. Not that this is some weird, fascinating, awful thing, but that actually it's a, a, a mysterious and awful product of modern civilization. Well, those sorts of ideas are constantly being uh, reiterated in the face of this which really cannot bear the burden of being seen as representative of society or of humanity or even of men, though I'll come back to that. The second thing I want to uh, take us to it's just a quotation from um, a film, which I'll show you an extra from later, called Antikörper, Antibodies. Um, and this is a quotation from the very beginning of the film, which I think is actually very suggestive. It's, it's, put, into, it's put into the mouth of the uh, serial killer who is the main character. Um, and the point that he's making is that... Some serial killers catch the imagination. Some serial killers, such as Jack the Ripper and Charlie Manson, Charlie as he calls him, um, Charles Manson, are seen as somehow being incredibly significant. They catch the public imagination. They become part of the reference points of popular culture. And yet, as he says, actually Jack the Ripper... Really didn't kill that many people compared to many other serial killers, and and Charles Manson didn't kill anyone at all. He just got other people to kill. Uh, you know, he just commanded other people to kill. So in a way, he's got a point, and it's a very this very idea. Why is it that some killers seem somehow to represent something? They seem to summon up something about the society in which they appear, and other killers just get forgotten. And interestingly, although I don't think it's obviously deliberate on the part of this uh, person, these killers are actually quite—they're in- actually quite interesting in terms of uh, race. For instance, um, it's true that López um, did kill, possibly did kill 300 people. I mean, I think he was convicted of killing 53, but it's widely thought that he certainly killed a lot more than that. But, um, he, first of all, you know, it was in Colombia and Peru and Ecuador. I mean, what do you expect? How do you expect that to be well-known anywhere else in the world? And also, he uh, killed a lot, of the, a lot of his victims uh, were native peoples. And it seems to be the case that often when the native peoples complained about someone being killed, they were, in fact, it was actually set literally in one case in Peru... The police said, we can't waste our time on Indian complaints. So there's a way in which it, it doesn't fit in with a particular idea of what a serial killer should be like. These are kind of, it's a kind of irrelevant to a particular idea of, ser- of serial killing. Equally, interestingly, Jack the Ripper, whom he mentions... It, the first suspects of Jack the Ripper were, in fact, working class people and very often uh, immigrants. And one of the most spoken about was John or Jacob uh, Pisa, who was, in fact, a Polish Jew. So quite early on, there was a sense that maybe this serial killer, Jack the Ripper, because they didn't have that term then, serial killer, I mean, um, they, maybe, maybe he was uh, a Jew. But interestingly... Quite soon after that there became established the idea that actually Jack the Ripper was middle class or even aristocratic or even of course royal. It's sort of gradually gone up the class system over the the last hundred years or so. So that in uh, The Lodger, for instance, he's just a toff. We don't know much more than that about him. In Jack the Ripper, he's a doctor, the film Jack the Ripper. Edge of Sanity is actually a version of uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. So again, a doctor who then takes a potion and becomes Jack the Ripper. And then in this film, um, in the corner there, you might even be able to read the title. It's called Murder by Decree. And in that, it is a member of the royal family who is the, uh, Jack the Ripper. So again, it's, sort of, it, it's not, I mean, who knows who it really was? but the point is there, there was a sense at one time that it could be someone who wasn't white, and then it's gradually become whiter and whiter and gone up and up the class system. Um, and, of course, Charles Manson wished to create um, race... Uh, Riots and race war uh, through his killings. I mean, how rationally or wish to, but that was very much part of the rhetoric behind his killings. So that idea about serial killing, um, some catch the imagination and others don't. And the ones that catch the imagination feed into certain ideas of white masculinity, uh, and that's what I'm wanting to concentrate on, although at the end I will also talk about female serial killers. The third um, introduction I want to take is to take two examples from this article by by Philip Jenkins now Jenkins is concerned to, say, to show as much more recent sociological work has shown that actually as a percentage I mean the numbers we're dealing with are so tiny here but as a percentage of uh, all serial killers African Americans are just as representative in the category serial killers as they are in any other aspect of American life so that's his main concern but he does come up with an interesting from my point of view comparison of two killers uh, who were um, in ki- killing in the Philadelphia area in the 1980s. Gary Heidnik, and, who c- killed three people, and Harrison Mart Graham, who killed seven people. Gary Heidnik uh, was white, Harrison Mart Graham was black. Now what's interesting is that Gary Heidnick has had a huge, as it were, afterlife. So not only uh, is he himself, uh, I mean, I I had never heard of him, but nonetheless, he had quite a public presence. There was a lot of coverage. Up there, you've got a picture from the uh, New York uh, Times, a coverage of him, and there was massive coverage in the New York papers. Uh, There's a a book written about him. You can buy a serial killer calendar. Believe it or not, there are such things uh, in which he features. Um, And he is also said to be the basis for the character of Buffalo Bill in the film and in the book and the film of The Silence of the Lambs. On the other hand, uh, our other uh, serial killer is almost, in fact, so much so that... I need to press that. Uh, There was absolutely no, there was coverage of him, even though he killed more people, there was coverage of him in the Philadelphia press and that was it. There was no national press, there's been no subsequent coverage of of, uh, Graham since then. Now what I want to take from that is that really it's, not, it's nothing to do with how awful the crimes are or the scale of the crimes. It's to do with what fits certain ideas of what a serial killer is. And what I want to go on to argue now is that that in its turn fits in with certain ideas we have about both whiteness and masculinity. Uh, in fact there's hardly any examples in cinema of black or non-white serial killers one exception is this film Switchback which is quite interesting because the killer played by Danny Glover is a cowboy with all the resonances that that has of course in uh, white western history and a lot of it's also set in the snow you might want to make something that I don't know but there is a sense in which oh my goodness it's a black person playing the part. The film doesn't say that the film just has him there like colour blind casting but it's very, it's very striking because it's so unusual. The only other exception I can think of is the French film *J'ai Passé*, um, in which the serial killer is um, a uh, one of the two serial killers. Actually, is is a, a, a black man. Significantly, he is a black man, but he is a much paler black man than his brother. So, what you see there is a picture of him uh, with his brother, and they're both with their mother. Um, and just to add to it, he's gay. Um, and I think Claire Denis has a kind of, I find troubling, actually, uh, fascination with both uh, black men and gay men. I mean... So anyway, well, that doesn't really matter what I think about Claire Denis. But uh, what's significant, I think, is just these are the only examples. And even in this example, it's rather like in the the um, cabin—not the cabin. let this calling it. would be interesting in Uncle Tom's Cabin. Um, the the spirited, brave, intelligent black characters are in fact very pale. And there's a whole tradition of representing uh, a certain certain way of representing black people who, uh, as as pale and. and And then by that supposedly acquiring white characteristics so that even might be said to be true of this uh, very rare example of a black serial killer. But the fact is that most of the time uh, the black uh, serial killers are white, unquestioningly white, and it just works right culturally, not in fact, but culturally it works right. And I want to look at an example um, from uh, Peeping Tom, which was a film that created a great scandal when it was made in 1960, which is about a, um, a cinematographer who um, kills women as he also cinematographically shoots them um, and I'm going to show you a bit where he's doing that but I want to first look at this quotation which is from an article uh, which is an interview with um, the director uh, Michael Powell which said, I tried to go beyond the ordinary horror film of unexplained monsters and instead show why one human being should behave in this extraordinary way it's a story of a human being first and foremost we suggested as a rather interesting period note of the way um, journalists in the Times wrote in those days, we suggested that one reason for the outraged response was the casting of a normal handsome man in the role of the murderer. I think that had something to do with it. He was a figure to disturb the audience by being asked to identify with with and understood. And of course what's interesting is that the the default in any such statement, really, in Western culture, when you talk about the human being, when you then look at this human being, it turns out to be a male human being and a wise human being. And that's true in um, Peeping Tom. Now, one I think things interesting to look at in this extract, where, um, we, which is pretty self-explanatory, he's agreed to um, make, take some photographs of a dancer which can be used for, um, she wants to put a portfolio to, together for her career. It's fairly self-explanatory. One of the things interesting is, and sort of like, can you imagine a black person in this role, a black man in this role? Can you imagine a woman in this role? Is it, or is there actually a specificity about? Uh, the, the, about the whiteness. Even though he's not being cast as white, he's not making a point about white, nothing ever makes a point about being white. But nonetheless, uh, is it actually dependent upon, uh, does it work precisely because he is in fact a white man, not just any human being? Okay, so let's just have a look at this. Now I think what's interesting to me about that in terms of, uh, you know, could, could you imagine a black man? I mean, if you had a black man just... Just think of the mythology around black men and penises. I mean, the, I don't, I'm trying to dispel out the phallic imagery, I must admit, rather irrelevant, irreverently. When he says this, it's sort of, almost like he's you know, revealing himself. Um, and she said that. It's was, it was it probably the best response, really. But anyway, um, nonetheless, let's uh, get our minds back to higher things. But he, uh, so I mean, that's the whole sort of. First of all, the whole caressing of the camera and the whole playing with this, the tripod leg and the sort of loving it and so on, the whole, the whole kind of investment in the phallus is, first of all, would be different if it was a woman. And also it would be different if it was a black man because of all the mythology around the phallus in relation to black men. So actually it can't just be straight, you can't just straight say well it happened to have a white actor and after all 1960 what would you expect? It's not, that's not enough. There is a sense in which it doesn't, it would not work it's not that it couldn't be done but it would not work the same with a black man or with a woman of, of black or white or Asian or whatever. So, um, we're left then with the problem of uh, trying to see the whiteness, because once, once I've said, well, they're all nearly all white, and yes, if you try and think of them as black, that doesn't really quite work, but what else can we do? And one article I came across, I'm afraid only two days ago, and I haven't really taken it in, but I wanted to mention it, is this article from a new book um, published this year, um, edited by Alcina MacDonald, in which uh, Mark Bernard talks about the Saw films and talks about the way they use invisibility. Uh, And I hadn't really thought about the way one could actually think about invisibility. What he argues is that the the man uh, who's the killer in the Saw films feels that he has become invisible, that he's not important for various reasons, um, but including a sense that as a white man he really isn't important anymore. And to reaffirm his privilege, um, he then starts to kill people. People, including uh, uh, people of colour, and so on. Now, I think I just think it's a very interesting article. It's very closely argued, and I'm not going to say anything more about it. But I wanted to refer to it. But I think the whole idea of oh, sorry, this is just to remind us of the Saw franchise. Um, but the um, but just to. Uh, I think the idea of considering invisibility and how invisibility might work uh, in understanding the presence of white men in serial killing films could actually be very valuable. And one way, um, I thought one might do it, but I'm not going to try, I haven't even so new to me thinking about this at all. But uh, there's a theory within horror film studies of the unclaimed point of view shot. This is where you have a point of view shot, which is clearly a point of view shot of a killer or a monster whatever, but a killer. But you never, you don't know who it is, so that the person whose point of view it is remains invisible. And this has been talked about by uh, Isabel Cristina Pinedo. Uh, and I think there might be some interesting mileage to trace that through in terms of the presence of white men through their not being, in, through their not being visible and so on. However, I've gone down for, this, for now the more obvious route of thinking about where they are visible. And one way in the, of thinking about that is, is examples where there's something very extreme about the representation both of masculinity and whiteness. There is, for instance, this very interesting film called Feminar Redens, uh, which is about a, 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 basically a white man, quasi-fascistic in his attitudes and certainly extremely misogynistic, um, who basically uh, get, lures women to where he lives and kills them. I mean, there is a twist in it which I won't explain now. Now but, for the, but certainly the first half of the film is entirely working with this idea of the, the, the white man who considers himself superior to women, superior to other people, a superior being in every way um, he's, uh, he's, he's also a kind of fitness freak and likes to show off uh, in front of women who he's got as captured, um, and uh, the whole kind of fit, the whole kind of investment in the, the in the super super body, the Superman body, and so on, is very important. And obviously, that again links to uh, traditions within fascism and the celebration of the male body within fascism in that way. And there's, of, it's of, there's often also uh, in coverage of. Um, Serial killers often stresses that they're involved with bodybuilding and, or with a very particular m- male body image, uh, and that's strong here. But even more extraordinary, I think, is this shot, which is clearly modelled on the idea of the big game hunter, clearly a reference on the one hand to um, colonial history and so on, but at the same time here transformed into the, the game, in this case being actually white women in this case. And that was so... Um, so uh, highly d- delighted people that saw the film that it was actually used a great deal in the publicity for the film, this idea of the, su- of the supreme white man who as it were substitutes the- for, the- for the beasts of the svelte or whatever, he, he uh, substitutes, or is it the velt? I shouldn't have tried to even think what it was uh, but anyway, for of the-, of the beasts that-, that you'd kill as a, wi- uh, a um, wild beast hunter he substitutes women However, I want to look back again at this film that I showed you, uh, the quotation from earlier, antibodies, because we have here, I think, condensed a number of the themes of what I'm calling the extreme white body. Um, this includes uh, the the idealized body that you see there, the, the heroic body, and uh, with its with the links with, with that and a certain kind of cut body culture that was associated with uh, well Nazism and fascism generally. We see in the extract his extraordinary self-control. He's—it's the beginning of the film, and he's just about to be arrested, um, but he shows no panic. He shows absolute self-control, and that—that that sort of uh, the ideal man is completely in control, never loses control, and so on. He's superhuman in his knowledge. He—he—he he, he, he can, as it were, see through doors, so he knows exactly how to kill the people standing outside them. He's superhuman in his capacity to survive. I mean, he, any, what, he, what happens in this would kill anyone else, but he survives it. And it ends with religious imagery. So we have also uh, Christian imagery uh, at the end of the clip. So let's have a look at this extra. So there we have an example of... Um which is very, very common, the sort of this appear, the, white, the serial killer as the values of white masculinity, of muscularity, of, but particularly of self-control, of knowledge, of, of a sense of superiority linked with certain traditions which either were explicitly white in the case of Nazism or which became white historically in the case of Christianity at any rate as it's understood within Europe. Uh, those, all those things come together in this kind of taking to its logical conclusion many of the ideals of white masculinity. Now, that is a very common way in which white masculinity is dealt with uh, in uh, serial-killing films. But there is an alternative tradition, which is exactly the opposite, really. Or rather, it's about failed white masculinity. And it would certainly get us into discussions, possibly, of white trash. Now, I'm not going to actually show you an example, show you an extract from this fantastic film, actually, Angst. Um, But this is a film about a man who... um, in, with him, voice over is constantly saying, I have got this wonderful plan, I'm going to kill lots of people, people will be terrified of me. I am, you know, in other words, he mouths the ego ideal of white masculinity. But in fact, He's a loser, um, and he's someone who's, uh, uh, in the course of the film, gets more and more pathetic and bloodied and hopeless. He does kill people, but he kills them incompetently, at length, messily, uh, completely uh, disorganized, not thought through at all, um, and even by the end, slightly comic. There's quite a comic element. The the dog uh, provides a charming note. And It's actually based upon someone who killed the dog, um, but they could Bear to kill that, even though it's not a British film, nonetheless, the filmmakers couldn't bear to kill the dog, in, actually, or have him kill the dog. Um, but nonetheless, this is a film which is actually about the failure to live up to the white masculine ideal. So you've got two extremes, as it were. Uh, one extreme, this over controlled, terrifying, implacable, superior being as it were, white masculinity gone mad, out of control in a sense in its excess of control, and certainly you can see a link there, if anyone's interested, I'm actually talking about this at King's College in a few weeks' time, the link, the link there with all sorts of uh, Nazi ideals and the equation people often make between serial killers and Nazis. So on the one hand, you've got that. On the other hand, you've got failed masculinity, and many uh, films in which the serial killers, the, the life just gets worse and worse, and they often are surrounded by bodies, and it's filthy and it's mucky and it's dirty, is exactly not achieving what these crazed, superior white, white serial killers achieve. Okay, so what I've been talking about so far uh, is, uh, I mean, there is much more else to be said, but essentially I've been talking about white masculinity um, and the... Uh, Assumption uh, that even though white men are not the only men that serially kill, that somehow that works because it fits with an idea of white masculinity. However, it's not the case that everywhere in the world that is how things work out, exactly the same. And if we turn to Italy, we actually find uh, that in certainly in Italian cinema, but also in Italian mythology, women are often as important as men. It's not that there aren 't uh, first of all there 's a kind of perception there aren 't serial killers at all in Italy. Um, so in one way it's, it's almost a kind of assumed to be something that's a bit foreign, a bit American, a bit Nordic and so on. So partly there's a qu- quite widespread assumption and the, f- the Italian for serial killer is serial killer. So they actually use the same word because it's almost like it's not a very Italian thing. However there are mythic figures and there is a tradition of cinema which is full of serial killers and is, is, has many more women serial killers than any other filmic tradition I've come across. And I think the representative figure here, the kind of the Jack the Ripper, the figure who has the same resonance uh, in in Italian culture, is this uh, fascinating case of Leonardo Cianciulli, who was known as la saponificatrice, apologize for my accent, uh, which means the soap maker. She uh, killed, um, really only three people, she killed three elderly women, she axed them uh, in her kitchen, She boiled down their, this was in the 1940s during the war, she boiled their bodies down and turned the fat into soap and she was called the soap maker. She ground their um, bones into, uh, well she ground them right down and mixed them with flour to put into biscuits and anything else that was left over she threw into the river at the back of her house. Now this is already, you know, fairly spectacular in the sense that here is this is a kind of very domestic serial killing. But interestingly, it re- resonates. It's not only the kind of that, but it resonates with so many other themes in Italian culture. She was a woman from the south who was nonetheless uh, living in the north. She claimed to have been told when uh, she, by a gypsy with all the kind of overtones that has within uh, uh, Italian culture that that she would um, that she would lose all her children as she, when she when she marries not having children she was raped at the age of uh, seven I think something like that so this kind of whole accumulation of things but the most interesting thing is why she did it. She had had many children, I think she had about 14 children, and all the boys had died except for one. And this was time of the war, um, and she was very worried that he was going to be called up to fight in the war and that she would lose him as well. So she had a dream, she said, uh, in which the Virgin Mary appeared to her and said that there needed to be, if there were blood sacrifices, then her son would be saved. So she killed these elderly women as sacrifices for the Virgin Mary to save her son. Now, partly, it's fascinating, this mixture of kind of pagan ideas of blood sacrifice with Christianity. So partly, it's, it's fascinating and resonant like that. But above all, the reason for doing it was to save her son. And the really common theme throughout The Italian um, crime films uh, is this idea of the family, that you do things for the family. The family is the explanation. It's not as in the uh, sort of northern and uh, American tradition of serial killers, you kill people because you want to, because it means something or other. In the Italian films, overwhelmingly, it's, although there are cases like that, but overwhelmingly, it's for the family. There was a film made of uh, her life called Gran Bolito... Which some of you may know refers to a dish of cooked meats, uh, much prized in Bologna. and She lived near Bologna, and more. This very recently, you see there a um, graphic novel based on. There've been plays about her, and so although the, there's only the one film, it's not very good. But there's all sorts of other uh, memorabilia and cultural production around her. But what is interesting, I think, is the way this idea of the person who kills for the family becomes the kind of central motif of a kind of film which I'm sure a lot of you know about called the giallo, which means the yellow, and it's called that because crime novels, when they first started to be published, there wasn't a real indigenous tradition of crime novels until very recently in Italy, but when they started to be published in the 30s, there were mainly translations of Agatha Christie and people like that, uh, they were always published in yellow covers. As I've not been able to discover any reason why it was yellow, but because of that crime fiction has become known as the JALO and the films which are very unusual because they have a strange mixture of uh, supernatural elements as well as crime elements have become known as the JALO and just to put up some of the more um, sort of memorable titles I mean some of the often the best thing about these films is the title, titles uh, and there are huge numbers of them this is just the tip of the iceberg there must be at least about 200 or so Um, which one is it the duckling that you're particularly enjoying Um, anyway um, these films uh, which are quite bloody in many ways and quite direct very often have if not a female serial killer they often have a female serial killer but over and, over and over again the reason for the killing is to do with the family. So just to take one or two uh, examples, the, this is the girl who knew too much uh, which is obviously partly the title puns on Hitchcock's film The Man Who Knew Too Much. And in this film a husband uh, knows that his wife occasionally sort of they, can, loses her head and kills people but he protects her. And that whole idea of protecting someone is particularly important. So it's, she herself is not killing people uh, in, in itself to do with the family, but the whole thing about protecting the family unit is also extremely important. There's a wonderful novel about the, um, the, 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 the monster of Florence who's never really been discovered and a woman who becomes convinced that her son is the monster of Florence and we know that he isn't but she becomes convinced about this she decides that rather than put, rather than turn him over to the police she will kill him. So she kills him rather than him being given over to the police, because, in fact, the irony is he is not, in fact, the monster of Florence. So but that idea of the, everything must stay within the family, and if need be, you kill in order to preserve the family from the outside world. It's a recurrent theme in these films. Another example is a film called, it has many titles... Uh, this means chain reaction. There's e- Ecology of Crime is another one, Bay of Blood. And in America, it was called um, Twitch of the Death Nerve. Um, but um, this is a film in which everybody everybody is killing everybody, all of them for the family. So absolutely everyone in this film is killing other people for sort of various internecine family reasons. I mean, I think there were 17 murders in an hour and, qu- hour and a quarter or something. Um, Then this is uh, why are there those strange drops of blood on Jennifer and this is a film about a man who uh, kills kills lots of women because he blames them for having turned his daughter into a lesbian. Um, this is uh, What Have You Done to Solange, which is set in England, as a matter of in London. Uh, and this is about a man who kills the friends of his daughter, Solange, because they organized for her to have an abortion. And Of course, the whole thing about both lesbianism and abortion in relation to the ideal of the family is, of course, incredibly resonant. Um, and um, but particularly common is the recurrent figure indeed of the Chanchuli type the, the monstrous mother the mother that kills to protect the family the mother that kills out of, a, out of a, a commitment to preserving the family and that's a very, very recurrent image now I want to look at a particular uh, clip from a film called The House with the Laughing Windows this is a film uh, which is about a painter who go, gets a job uh, as a restoring a fresco um, in a uh, church in um, the Po region, I think it is, of, uh, no it isn't, I forget, what it's, I'm sorry, I forget, there's Ferrara, that region of uh, Italy. Um, and this painter is famous for being, um, of, of having depicted pain and death. So uh, we have a flashback at one point in which someone says, we called him the painter of agony. He liked to paint uh, people as they were dying. Um, and that was uh, that so that in, in the, um, in the, in the fresco that he has to restore, we see this agony, this painting of agony. But whilst he's there, people start to die. Uh, people start to be killed, I should say he 's warned off he 's told to, to clear out. People start to be killed and At one point, the painting itself is defaced, and he realizes that the paint that what 's been defaced are the two figures on either side of the um, kind of Saint Sebastian figure, both of whom he comes to realize look like um, two elderly sisters that he 's met, elderly and uh, so he believes uh, bedridden sisters. Well, he comes. To, he, um, he decides to explore, and I want to show you the bit where he explores and finally finds out what's going on. I should warn you that this, on the one hand, by today's standards, is really nothing. But on the other hand, does, is quite gory. Uh, so if any of you are particularly sensitive, I, I've warned you. Um, but don't, those of you who like such things, don't get too excited. <laughs> Favorite line, I think, is "Come, come, don't be frightened." <laughs> okay. Now, in case you—it's—I mean, such an extraordinary uh, notion. I mean, obviously, it's sort of supernatural as well. Um, but um, the lights. Yeah. Um, but basically, the, so the sisters are doing it for the brother and the sisters are killing people so that the brother can still carry on painting death so he can see death. Now, of course it's crazy it's mad but it's still informed by this same idea of the, of the kind of grotesqueness of the commitment to the family it's that kind of the commitment to the family taken <coughs> taken to a grotesque degree uh, just as the white masculinity is masculinity taken to its uh, logical conclusion and that is essentially what i want to end with in saying that what we might say about um, serial killing is that, I mean, there's many theories of the horror film and so on tend to say, oh, well, the horror is a horror and a fear and terror of the other. But what I want to suggest is that on the contrary, at any rate in serial killing film, it's actually a fear of dominant values. It's a fear either of white masculinity just the kind of logical conclusion of this overinvestment in control, overinvestment in the hard body. It's either a fear of that or a fear of failing to be that. So, either way, it's frightening. And similarly, in an entirely different cultural context, where a diff- not that there isn't a concern with masculinity, my goodness, in Italian culture, but nonetheless, in a culture obsessed with family loyalty, with a kind of atavistic feeling of the family comes first always, always, always then it's that dominant value that becomes the source of fear and it's again taken to its logical conclusion so what I'm trying to suggest is that first of all it's not true that only white men serially kill and I forgot to mention that women do serially kill much less than 50% of serial killers are women but nonetheless, about, you know, these numbers are almost meaningless, but about 16% of serial killers are, in fact, women. So it's not that women never, in reality, serially kill. But the point is that uh, in the imagination, it's only white men. It's not, and, and it's only white men in, the, in arc into Western, Nordic, Western American cultures. It's only white men because that fits with fears about where white masculinity leads, but also fears about failing to be uh, living up to the white masculine ideal. In a different culture, where there's many less serial killers and really very hardly any, in fact, female serial killers, nonetheless, within that culture... The, the family is what informs the, the construction of the serial killing, and of course that means that women become more important to serial killers because of the centrality of women to specifically the family. So um, that, that it's not the case that only white, men, uh, uh, only white men serially kill. It is the case in, in many cinemas – that only white men kill, because that's what white men do in those cinemas, but in other cinemas, other values obtain. And always, though, it's about the fear of dominant values. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much indeed. Um, We have about half an hour, perfect timing. Thank you very much. Um, We've got about half an hour for questions. So um, can I take... uh, Niamh, I can see your hand up. Um, I'm going to take two or three at a time, if that's all right with you. Um, Can I remind you, please, you need to wait for the mic to arrive um, uh, before you speak. And if you could just say... uh, from where you speak, unless you really don't want to, that would be helpful too. Okay, so, um, so can I just are there are there more questions, or are you still thinking? Okay, and so can we go to there and then then the person behind? Thank you very much.
2: Um, thank you. Hello. You, Is it on? Uh, thank you. Um, so I have kind of two-ish, one and a half questions. Um, what What are your thoughts on the idea that whiteness? in representations of the serial killer, rather than just kind of a visual code for banality or invisibility, is in fact constitutive of the serial killer as as a type in film. And what what the relationship between whiteness and masculinity and kind of um, embodiment, and this idea of like an internal struggle, and the way in which that is seen synonymous, almost synonymous with kind of a universal human nature, You you spoke about how, you know, we we hone in on the serial killer because it says something about human nature when, in fact, it it says something about white masculine nature. And I think that that kind of becomes synonymous. And I wonder if you thought there was something significant in that. And also, um, more specifically with film representations, what you thought um, about, like, phallocentric or andocentric kind of a male gaze, the way in which female female victims and their bodies are filmed, and whether that um, means that the serial killer is kind of, by constitution, male. I wonder what your thoughts on that were.
1: Uh, You mentioned that uh, serial killing is seen as one of the defects of modern uh, civilization. Can we think of it? Can we relate this, you know, this defect of modern
2: civilization as the symbol of modern civilization, the normal man being the white man?
1: Okay. Thank you both very much. Um, well, I do think, first of all, I think, as it were, within the serial kill, in films about serial killers and. I base it on European examples although of course I've looked at lots of non-European as well but that just happens to be what I've chosen to focus on. I think within that there is a sense that it's dealing with a universal human nature which turns out to be in fact a white male um, nature so it's it's not that the film's are really sort of examining that there are one or two that do actually um, there's a film called Children of Wax which I didn't talk about which is actually explicitly about um, a neo-Nazi who kills people and kills children and then paints them white, and he said, I'm trying to save the race from their Turkish children. Um, They're German, but they're of Turkish descent. So there are, but I mean, it's very unusual for it to be explicitly addressed, and in fact, it's very unusual for whiteness ever to be explicitly addressed. So it's me that's saying, actually, if you look, it's really to do with whiteness. Um, In terms of the, so I do think that whole idea of 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 an assumed human nature, I mean, I mean, one of the uh, – I'm just trying to think whether there's something about um, – I mean, it seems to me it's still true. I mean, part of me thinks, can this really be true after, you know, 40 years, whatever it is, of second wave feminism, you know, Barack Obama and the White House, et cetera, et cetera, and, you know, a lot of uh, – not a lot, but there are – um, ...senior figures in various walks of life in Britain who are, are not white... And so ...can it really be the case? But it seems to me that it's not that it's not... It's. It, ...and it may be that there is a shift now and that, as it were... ...it's not necessarily quite claiming universality so much as claiming... ...this is the, this is the dilemma, this is the anguish, this is the terror and the terror both for others but for themselves of white masculinity. So maybe, I'm not not sure I could prove that from the films, but it seems to make more sense given what our culture is like now. In terms of the the phallocentric, um, I mean, it's certainly the case that in most of these films, uh, in most of the films, North European, including French and Spanish, in fact, Italy really is exceptional. Uh, In most of those films, um, the unclaimed point of view does turn out to be a male point of view, Um, so that the kind of assumption uh, of that... Now, that doesn't, of course, mean... uh, I mean, the problem with those theories about the phallocentric gaze is that they kind of then extrapolate from that to say, well, that's, so if women are watching it, they're somehow taking up the position of men, or even if men are watching it, they're taking up that. It's not necessarily the case. Often, I mean, this is just really about film theory, but, you know, when you read a first person novel, you don't sort of think you're that first, you're that person when you read it. So similarly, when you have a point of view shot, you don't necessarily think, oh, well, now I'm a serial killer for a moment. So I just think there's a kind of problem with that, but I do, it is the case nonetheless that th- those point of view shots are overwhelmingly point of view shots of, from the point of view of, of, of men Th- that of course is not true in the Italian case where you in lots of these films the point of view shot turns out to be the point of view of a woman um, So it's, it, it's, and that's because of the, uh, the way in which the family is so central to the understanding of those films and therefore the kind of privileging of women uh, compared to the kind of anonymous lone male Image which uh, which we tend to associate with North European and, and American serial killers. I'm not sure that's answered the point, but anyway, it's a start.
0: And then the um, and then the point from from uh, I'm sorry, I've forgotten I've forgotten your question as well. Now, what was your, what was your question
2: again? Uh, and white Oh
1: well, sorry. I thought I'd done with. I thought I'd sort of dealt with that, but but I don't know if you felt. Um, and, well, in a way, I think there is this problem about whether. I mean, you see, what the the I've the, the name, but the man who wrote about saw said that actually, what those films are partly about is white men in anguish because they can no longer take that position. And so they still have the privilege of invisibility. In fact, they still have lots of privileges, but nonetheless, there's, they're surrounded by discourses which challenge it. And of course, they, he talks about feminism, but not only that. So that it's much harder to maintain than it was as un, kind of unproblematic. But on the, I mean, I think, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm unresolved about it. But if, when I watch television and just flick around the channels, it seems to me it's still white men rule. Okay, you know, and if you if you go and see um. I often think about sort of contemporary, the big blockbusters. Really, still the leader of the savior of the world is a white man. If you think of, you know, The Matrix, and it's a bit old now, but, you know, he, he's set up as, I mean, he's the, the, the rather adorable Keanu Reeves, but nonetheless, <laughs> despite, he's set up as this incompetent. He's absolutely set up as this incompetent who's too scared to even walk along the uh, side of a, a building. Well, so would I be, but I mean, you know, he's, he's not an action, splendid action man, but he's the savior of of the world and I think there are lots of films about the saviour of the world which turns out to be a white man so I, it, uh, part of me thinks it is changing it's no longer as secure but it's by no means to simply a well there's just lots of diversity and everything's resolved as far as that's concerned
0: okay, do we have
3: uh, one two three questions can we take hi um. This is a little bit off topic because it's not about a serial killer film, but it seems to kind of resonate um, with some of what you've been showing, which is something you haven't really talk- talked about, Was is the relationship between sort of white masculinity and serial killing and perverse sexuality or sort of non-normative or something? something's wrong sexually. Um, and it struck me that the, the Antibodies film, and I, there's some um, similarities between the actors, but really reminded me of some of the imagery in Shame, the sort of Michael Fassbender, and seems to have a lot of those qualities of um, controlled yet uncontrolled, um, an emphasis on that kind of white, um hyper-toned masculine body. But here, and, and again, a seriality, but here a seriality with um, an uncontrolled or perverse sexuality. And I wonder if there might be some interesting links there between sort of sexuality and killing or sexuality and death and masculinity. Um, yeah, I wonder if you
1: have any thoughts on that, Um What conventions are there in Japanese
4: and other Far Eastern cinemas? Are they similar, or do they have a different set of traditions?
0: Um, there
3: was a question. Thank you. Hi, thank you for your talk. I'm Amanda, I'm at the Gender Institute here. Um, I was just curious, actually, what you maybe what thoughts you might have had about um, sort of representations of mass murders in cinema. Sort of thinking about this recent film, um, there's something about Kevin, and I just wondered if you'd had any thoughts about the way that figures white masculinity, or if there's yeah.
1: What was that film? Did you say?
3: Uh, there's something about Kevin. Oh, something about okay. Kevin. Yeah. I thought you said about
1: heaven. Oh, thought, know, oh. about yeah. Okay. Kevin. No, I've no, I've yeah. seen. Yeah.
3: And just a comment, actually, yeah. which I thought was kind of interesting, is um, Keanu Reeves is actually half a lion, so he's red as white, but then also just yeah, that was just. Oh, Keanu.
1: Like, oh. Yes. <laughs> um, well, let me. Uh, uh, I shall ask the first one because the, the second two I can probably do quicker. Um, I think the fear expressed in well, I haven't seen Shame, but I've, you know, obviously, I've read a lot about it and so on. Uh, well, say, I hate when students. Say that. I haven't seen the film, but I've read a lot about it. But anyway, um, so uh, but still, um, but you know, I, I think it's really interesting. It makes the first time anyone said anything about it. Me thought I'd like to see it actually. Um, the uh, I think the fear is not that it's that it precisely it's normative. It's not that that's it's not non-normative. It's normative, and that's what's terrifying. And that I don't know, but, but and certainly in the serial killer, it's, just, it's simply taken to again. It's put that it's pushed and pushed and pushed. So it's not. I mean, it, it seems to me it's not non-normative. It's actually very normative, um, but it's kind of very normative, <laughs> and that's what's frightening about it. And I think that could be interesting to think about shame like that. In to, I'm afraid I just don't know in relation to non-Western. I've seen one or two films. Uh, that I think there are a lot of films, for instance, Korean films, um, which are. I mean, my only obs- I've, The films I've seen, like *Vengeance Is Mine* and *Memories of Murder*, and not many others, I've seen actually. Um, I can't say I notice anything that could not have been the same in a Western film. But that could be because those are the Uh, Japanese and Korean films that got shown in the kind of cinemas I went to you know what I mean so it could be that they're they're selected because they will work with a non uh, Japanese non-Western audience I've been reading accounts of um, Singaporean and some Indian as well uh, films and some Japanese but but not, not by no means all there is a greater embrace of the supernatural I mean there is that in, in, the, in European films, when the supernatural is raised as a possible dimension, it's nearly always shown to not be the case. So it's very rare that you get a genuine supernatural. I mean, even in The House with the Laughing Wind, because it's, they're mad. But they're not, I mean, you're not supposed to think that he's really still painting or anything. You just may think they're crazed. So, um, whereas in some American films, even Friday the 13th and those films, there is a willingness to embrace the supernatural. But in a lot of films, even ones that are inspired by Americans, like there's a uh, Norwegian, have I got that right? Frit Vilt, I think it's Norwegian. Anyway, Scandinavian uh, series. Uh, which is supposedly about a a, a phantom that rises from the lake. Of course, it turns out, in the end, it's not that. Um, So, uh, over and over again, European films like don't seem to want to accept, which does, it it does seem there is quite a strong um, strain, at any rate, of supernatural serial killers uh, within um, uh, non-Western cinema. But it's, I mean, it's an an arter that comes from, Pretty much ignorance, really. That's just my sense of it. Um, yes, mass murderers, I think, are, is very interesting because, of course, it's actually quite a rare. Where is it? uh, It's quite a rare uh, thing in films. I mean, there's Kevin, there's, there's Elephant, there's one or two other examples. Um, and if, I mean, obviously, you know, people, sociologists and criminologists, and so on, make a distinction between mass murderers, in which um, a lot of people are all killed at once. Um, Bravik in uh, Oslo is a very famous recent example, a real person. And then people talk about spree killers, where it takes a few days, and but nonetheless, it's all part of one arc of killing. You it's a problem about how valid those distinctions are. Where serial killing, there's always a break. And so, on. well, I mean, my what's interesting is that there are so few films about that. That the Kevin film is all about the problem of the mother. It's really all about the problem of the mother bringing up this child from hell, basically. Um, and uh, Elephant, of course, is quite an experimental f- film, relatively speaking. And I think the problem is that it's not a very good narrative device, because there's just one event, which is all this killing, and then what? Either you've got a build up to it, but then the build up's not necessarily very interesting, because it's meant to come from nowhere. Um, or you've got the aftermath, but well, I suppose you could have a detective thing about. But usually, they've killed you. Know they are anyway. No, I think there's, and I think I don't want to be over formalist about this, but I do think there's a way in which what gets treated is also what can be told as a good story. That is a very important determinant of what gets it to be a cultural dominant. What what is what is a good story? And in a way, the mass murder isn't a very good story um, because as I say it's just one big event. Uh, It's also, you know, I suppose, um, I mean, also, although, of course, serial killing is full of kind of killing and full of blood and horridness and sadism and all the rest of it. Perhaps there is something, it's a bit like the Holocaust. I mean, obviously not on that scale, but it has that sense of it's too awful to show. And the film would have to spend an awful lot of time just showing it. Of course, you can do that, but it's always sort of somehow linked to perver- a perverse individual in a serial killer. And as a perverse individual, of course, in the mass murderer. But, it, but the whole event is this many, many people being killed in one go. And it would can be lingering over something which is very familiar uh, in its form from the news. So I don't know if, that is a, if it is that, but I basically think it's not, it's not a good story. I suppose so. I'm not quite sure what, what you're thinking about there. <laughs> uh, um, I mean, obviously, an awful lot of serial killing is about, uh, you know, it is a, it is a, I'm not sure what narrative to call it. It's, it's, not, it's a kind of romance come pornographic narrative. It's about finding someone to have killing with, but obviously, it's also about having sex with, and... So it does have that drive in it, yes. So in that sense, it does relate to other kinds of um, narrative that we know. Yeah.
0: Okay, we've got time for one more. So down here, and then there's two up there. Oh, okay. I'll try and have. Okay, no. we'll try and we'll try and get two more rounds. I'm in then.
1: like Judy Garland. <laughs> I'll stay all night and sing them all.
0: <laughs> okay. So so since we have three questions on this side and then we'll move over to that side for the next round there's more than three we won't the other yes. can i ask you to keep your questions succinct
4: please yes i will try to keep this uh, very succinct um, i was just thinking about what you said in terms of the serial killer sort of being the uh, the fear of the normative <laughs> but i thought wondering if it's also sort of allowing the sort of everydayness of whiteness or of masculinity to stay violent but just not that violent so there's this production of the exceptional whiteness or the exceptional masculinity or the failed version but as long as we maintain ourselves in this sort of everyday then the sort of domestic violence or the sort of racial violence that whiteness does in the everyday is somehow less, uh, less valid or less uh, um, needing of intervention
3: Hi, uh, first of all I wanted to know if you thought the Swedish film Let the Right One In is a sort of interpretation of the serial killing genre. And if you did, what you thought of the role reversal between the failed white male as a serial killer and the young girl as the successful serial killer? Sorry,
0: behind, behind that. Yes, there go. Hi. Um... I was just thinking about the sexuality issue, and I, I was really struck by the cinematography, um, killing film that you saw that looks fantastic. Um, but the, one of the things it that was struck me. The antibodies. Me, yeah, it was yeah. that the one. Yeah, and uh, with with the cinema, with the with the sorry. With oh no, the, peeping Tom. Peeping Tom, that's it. Yeah, um, that one of the things that struck me about that um, is the way in which, in fact, it's a flirtation. Uh, that is that it that then becomes effectively um, about the anxiety and the fear when she realises that he's not the normal white male she expected, but is in fact the the, the killer. And that in that case, then it, it it clearly does rely on a on a kind of um, sexual temporality as well as um, the whiteness of it to work. Because otherwise, if it had been a black man or a woman, she'd have already run screaming from the room.
1: Is, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well taking the first one no, I absolutely think that I mean I think in general one of the ways that white masculinity reproduces itself is by saying well I'm not that I'm not that extreme um, but at the same time there is that niggling possibility that I am so that's why the films keep being made and that's why they're still fascinating but I think you're, you're right though there is a sense of oh well of course white, most white men aren't like that or maybe they are so it's the kind of I think that's really important I'm not sure about let the right one. Of course, I mean, it is supernatural. Um, so to that extent, and I hadn't really. I think it's very interesting what you said about the role reversal, which I hadn't really thought through, um, and I haven't looked at it again. I mean, I loved it actually, but I haven't seen it again um, because it's supernatural. Because they're not, you know, they're vampires. They're not. Uh, they're not. You know, it's just. A, it all, it's not that I think there is such a hard and fast distinction, but it just makes. You know, I've already got 500 films to look at you know what I mean it's a, it's a big body of films amazingly big I'm terrified how many more I've got to look at sort of thing um, yeah, I think the thing about the flirtation in that and flirtation of course is um, is a narrative and it's a very ambiguous narrative and with all sorts of dangers about pressure and giving in and resisting and all of those things which are absolutely being played on in that case I think that's absolutely right um, It may be unusual because it's quite... I mean, you do get films in which serial killers pick someone up and there's a flirtation before they realise. But it's quite often, of course, they're just simply snatched. So there almost isn't the flirtation, um, unless it's being deliberately used. I mean, I saw an Irish film called The Fantasist the other day where she gets away because she flirts with him and actually has sex with him and then she gets away. But that's that's the only one I've ever seen like that. Um, So... in, I suspect that peeping Tom is unusual rather than characteristic um, because it is much more the snatching. You snatch the victim.
0: Right? Okay, I'm going to put two questions. And I'm going to take them from this side of the room because I've been taking too many from them. So there and there, please. And again, can we just be really quick because we're running out of time? We've
1: got to leave at 8. <laughs>
0: Thank you for your talk. Um, I just wanted to ask, the idea of this only white man, it's applicable to serial killers, but I was wondering if it was also applicable to other villains in films? So whether, and if there isn't a positive correlation between the two, why is it different?
4: Um, So you talk about dominant values and from what I've gauged from your examples, the serial killer, whether consciously or otherwise, actually embodies and expresses these dominant values. Well, I was wondering, what do you make of the cases in which the serial killer actually opposes or reacts to what he perceives as the dominant values? I'm thinking specifically of Seven where the killer mm, portrays the dominant values of the day as being excess and promiscuity and his is a puritanical reaction against it. Is that a dominant trend in serial killer, genre? Yes. Oh, is that Yes, yes. Uh, no, that was...
1: That was.
0: That was as many as I allowed. Oh, right. (laughs) I
1: I don't know the answer to the other villain's question. Um, I mean, it probably is true that most villains in films are men. And um, most films are about white people. So to that extent... But, I mean, obviously, for instance, gangster films or whatever you... Certainly in the last 20 or so years, you would certainly wouldn't expect it to be only a gang would only have white members for instance so I suspect a lot of other genres are not quite as fixated and are more uh, you know there's more racial diversity um, I don't I mean I haven't really thought about it but um, I think if you go further back um, it probably is true uh, and I think it's very interesting. There's often a fascination with female serial killers or female villains, general, the femme fatale. But it's always slightly in the context of oh "My goodness, a woman!" Uh, so it never, it never quite settles down into "Well, it's another wicked woman." It's always slightly amazing. Um, so it's never quite settled down into that. Uh, so it does remain enormous around masculinity. But I would have thought, and there were a lot, and then of course there were plenty of. Um, see, there are plenty of. Uh, uh, you know, black exploitation films don't have serial killers, but most people in the films are black. So there's there's plenty of villainy that's not white, um, but not in serial killers. Um, well, Seven, uh, you know, one of my favourite films. Um, I mean, I think the point about the the killer in Seven is that he does he represents the dominant values, which have as it were because. Which are which? Well, what he says is, you know, this is these are the values that are espoused by society, but we're not actually living up to them. So I'm going to show you how they should be lived. So it's almost like the Christian values. He has taken that, which is, after all, you know, the you know, what, particularly in America, you know, most people are religious in America. It's our, you know, which is not true in uh, Europe, um, and. I imagine, I don't know what the percentage is but most people are Christian of some kind or another. So there's a sense in which officially, I mean think of, think of the way presidents always emphasize the fact that they're Christian they go to church etc. And it's, off, it's said, I mean it's true that you can't really become elected to high office in the states unless you go to church. I mean you can go to the synagogue, you can go, it is that possible. Um, I mean it was a big thing at one with Kennedy that he was a Catholic, that was already a bit daring so um it's not that but none so in that context what D- john doe is saying in that film is something like this the i do represent the values but look they're not being lived up to so i'm going to um in a sort of spectacular way um live out the uh, the values of uh, of christianity essentially
0: Okay, because I've been so officious, we do actually now have time for one more question. <laughs> so can we take it? In fact, okay, two more questions. One there and one there, please. And there. <laughs> okay,
4: so... Uh, right, I'll be as succinct as I can. Uh, one of my favourite phrases is, uh, even, if you re- you re- even if you win the rat race, you're still a rat. Full stop. We're all rats. Um if you haven't been to Peru that makes two of us but I have a daughter who's half Peruvian so by association you can probably work out I got to know her mum and I got to realize that in Peru as uh, I hope I don't offend anybody here there are pretty violent lots now, if I can take you away from the cinema and into the real world, uh, which, of course, this is based on, um, I suggest to you that actually what is happening here in the, um, in the mind of the uh, main actor is going to be something like, my genes, not yours, bang, bang. Comment, full stop. And
0: behind?
2: Historically, there are many famous white, uh, exclusive, well, exclusively white serial killers who kill women and oftentimes foreign women and or sex workers. I was wondering if you think there's a relationship between colonialism and whiteness in serial killing cinema related to purification or ideas of the removal and control of the less worthy.
1: Um, well, it's actually in the s- serial killing cinema, it's actually, it, they certainly often kill sex workers, that's true. They very seldom kill people of a different race. And that's also apparently true of actual serial killers. It's nearly always intra-racial. So there are cases, like I mentioned the film Children of Wax, where he is specifically wanting to cleanse the race. And there are examples of that. But they're actually quite unusual. Um, So... um, I don't. I don't think. I don't think it. In that, it doesn't really work like that. It is. It is kind of a white thing, in terms of the victims as well. Um, it's, I'm trying to think. Of, I mean, there must be cases um, of uh, white people who kill. I mean, I think some of um, Dennis Nielsen. Well, they are not sure. Even sure, Jeffrey Dahmer's. Some of his victims were black. But um, so it's not. It obviously, does happen. But it doesn't seem to be a major pattern. Um, I'm not sure I really understand the point about ge- your. I mean, the serial killing is non-reproductive, so the genes don't really matter very much. Well, it's non-reproductive for the killer. Yes, but unless he takes one exception, which obviously he does, I don't really understand. I'm afraid. I mean. They are killing people, but they don't—they don't want to—they don't want to reproduce. In fact, you know, they almost make it impossible by the fact of killing. Um, But also, it's not really what it's about. Um, So I don't really. Even within the Italian examples, it's—it's often about the in its resentment about non-reproduction. So that might relate to the point about non-normative, because what's not built into. Uh, of course there is also lesbian and gay killing but if we take the majority heterosexual, there's not built into that a concern with reproduction it's, it's actually non-reproductive sex if you're insofar as it is sex so I'm not sure I quite understand
4: I'm um.
0: I'm very sorry. I'm going to have to, I'm to, have to call a halt uh, to the proceedings because we are out of time now. Thank you all very much for thank your you. questions. Thank but you. most importantly, thank you. For-